Good. Well, let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for bringing us to this place, which is an indication of your mercy and your ongoing grace to us in our lives. We, we view this experience, this sanctuary experience, this opportunity of gathering with your people as a means of grace. And so we pray that grace would be imparted, that we would be helped, that we would be strengthened, that we would be challenged. And one of the lingering prayers in my own heart right now is that you would do something in this sermon so that by the end of it, we come out of here with a lot more respect for you than we came in into this room with. More respect and more fear in a very appropriate sense, in a very holy and appropriate sense that we would walk out of here and realize that you are God. And we are not here to play around. So, Lord, help us do that. Work that into us. Help me as the preacher to, to preach with liberty and power this word. Give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're starting a new series today um, at Heritage uh, on the book of Jonah. And if you haven't already, Tim helped us. Um, if you haven't already found Jonah, then please open your Bibles to Jonah. And if you're still looking for it, the clue is that it's tucked between Obadiah and Micah. I'm sure that's really helpful. <laughs> and so if you're looking for it, you might want to pull out the table of contents, or you can find it on 774 in the Pew Bible. But uh, I want to begin this series by doing an overview of the book of Jonah. And we're going to cover the first three verses this morning, but it's always helpful and it's always wise when you're getting ready to study a new book of the Bible, not just to rip it open and get going, uh, but to get a bird's eye view of the book. It's a good idea to see what the forest looks like before you start examining the trees. for And so let me take a couple of minutes. This is usually part where people tend to glaze over. Let me encourage you not to do that. Um, be patient with me as I want to give you a little background um, so that you understand what it is that you have in your hands here with the book of Jonah. It will help you as we proceed with this series. So first, let me give an overview of this book. The book has four chapters, 48 verses. The author is Jonah. His name means dove. He was a prophet uh, under Israel, under Jeroboam II, somewhere between 800 and 750 B.C. His name is only mentioned one other time in the book, uh, sorry, in the Bible, and that's 2 Kings 14.25. And a little summary of Jonah, chapter 1. Jonah is called to preach in a city called Nineveh, and he's like, I don't think so. And so he rebels against God, and he gets on his ship, and he tries to run away from God. Anyway, God goes after him, and while he's on the ship, he ends up in this fish, of all things. And then things get really crazy after that. Chapter 2, Jonah's actually in the fish, and he calls out to God in repentance while he's there. And we'll cover that in a couple of weeks, and that'll be a great time of reflection together as we consider Jonah's repentance, what that looks like, 
Uh, there's a lot of lessons there for us to learn. Chapter 3, he finally goes and actually does the thing God told him to do to begin with. And, and then in chapter 4, we find Jonah, and he's all he's in all in the dumps, depressed. He's, he's like Elijah. He's like sitting under the juniper tree. He's just laying there, just totally dejected. And again, we see God's grace as he meets with Jonah, and he addresses his sinful heart and his attitude. So that's a quick overview, okay? Now let's talk themes. All right, well, first of all, let's be clear about something. The book of Jonah is not about the fish. Uh, everybody seems to be fixated on the fish, from a little kid all the way up to liberal scholars. Everybody wants to talk about the fish, but it's just not about the fish. Um, you know, like when you're in Sunday school and, you know, you hear the story of Jonah, and they've got the uh, pictures of Jonah and all these things, and the kids are just so fixated on the fish, and nobody cares about what's happening with Jonah. They just want to know what's happening inside the fish. But in reality, the fish is only mentioned four times in the entire book of Jonah. So it's not about the fish. Secondly, this book is it's not about Nineveh either. Uh, Nineveh is only mentioned nine times in the book. And it might surprise you that really it's not even about Jonah. Jonah is only mentioned 18 times in the book. I'll tell you what. It's about God. God is mentioned 38 times in the book of Jonah, 38 times in 48 verses. It's about a merciful, loving, patient, persistent, pursuing God. Remember that time when you, you yourself, you turn from your sin and you embrace Christ by faith. Well, when that happened, God laid his hand on your life. And he's not letting you go. You can, you can be disobedient. You can have times and seasons in your life where you say, well, I'm running away from God. But if you're running, he's going after you. And if you're his, then he is going after you. In fact, one of the clear themes of the book of Jonah is God's relentless pursuit of his people. And God loves his children. And when he sins, God comes. When we sin, God comes after us. And he patiently and he persistently, and I'm thankful that it's patiently, and I'm also thankful that it's persistently, he brings us to a place of submission to his will. Okay, so that's the theme of Jonah. Now, before we jump into the text, let me, let me just get one thing out of the way. Did you know that Jonah is perhaps the most packed book in the Old Testament? It is. People are always going after uh, the book of Jonah, they're always attacking you. You mean a man gets swallowed by a fish, and, and he's like in the fish and lives in the fish for three days and three nights, and then the fish spits him up on dry land, and I'm supposed to believe that? That's what people say. Uh, they make a mockery of this book and say, and so people are constantly mocking it. But frankly, you know, I don't really understand why people attack Jonah. Why do they attack this book? Uh, because if you've read the Bible at all, and you started in Genesis, really this whole thing about God and appointing a fish to swallow Jonah, it really isn't that unbelievable. I mean, let's just start in Genesis, for example. You, in Genesis 1, we are confronted with a God who, listen, spoke the world into existence. 
with the word of his power. He spoke the universe into existence. And then you go a little deeper into Genesis, and the people are so rebellious, and so God wipes off the whole world with a flood, and then it gets really bad again, and, and, and the people, these people are building this tower to climb up to God and get closer to God, and so God knocks it down, and he spreads the people to the ends of the earth, and then he gives them all different languages. And then there's this city called Sodom and Gomorrah that's so wicked that God rains down hail and fire and brimstone, and he destroys the city. And we're like only halfway through the book of Genesis, and people are struggling with the fish. I mean, think about this. God is from the very beginning doing unbelievable and remarkable things. So why go after Jonah? Why, why attack this? This is not this is hardly surprising in the, in the large narrative of Scripture. Anyway, some scholars will come along then and say, well, you know what? I mean, it doesn't really matter whether there was a real man named Jonah or whether this really happened. Because either way, the story teaches us some nice lessons wrong it does matter because the integrity of god's word matters and jesus christ our savior and lord identified jonah as a real historical figure in matthew 12 for example when the pharisees were asking jesus for a sign jesus said no sign will be given but the sign of jonah who was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish just like the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth that's what Jesus said. And so if Joan is not a real figure, then Jesus was clueless, and Jesus wasn't clueless. So this is a very important issue. And here's what I would suggest to the scholarly world. Look, either this, either this right here is God's word or it's not. Either God wrote a book or he didn't write a book. And if he wrote a book, then why don't we just embrace it? As his full and final and authoritative word. You see, ironically, that's Jonah's problem. The story begins with Jonah's flight from God. The, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, but Jonah didn't obey God's word. So what happens to him? What's God's response? Well, the book of Jonah is really a storied presentation of the gospel. It's the gospel in narrative form, and it's a story of sin and grace. It's a story of desperation and deliverance. It's a story that reveals that we are great sinners, but God is a great Savior. Uh, it's, it's a story that reveals how God is a, is a God of great expenditure who is relentlessly pursuing self-righteous fugitives. It's a story that shows, I think, liberatingly, that while our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches farther. It's a story that shows how God's capacity to clean things up is infinitely greater than our capacity to mess things up. And that should be a very freeing thing for us to consider over the next six weeks. In fact, the story is, is told in such a way that the sinful heart of mankind and the gracious heart of God are continually contrasted throughout the story. For instance, 
Jonah runs from his enemies, and God runs toward his enemies. Jonah is on a mission of revenge because he hates those people. God is on a mission of rescue because he loves those people. Jonah is racially exclusive. God is racially inclusive. Jonah is all about self-protection. God is all about self-sacrifice. And so we make a huge mistake if we read this book and conclude, well, at least, at least I'm not like Jonah. Friends, that's who we are. You are Jonah, and I am Jonah. We are Jonah. This book is like a mirror to us. And as we painfully look at ourselves in the mirror of this book, we should see not only Jonah's self-righteousness, but we should see our own so clearly we examine ourselves in the mirror. And this is why we need the story of Jonah, because, folks, we need to get the gospel in. And, you know, this is a great book to get the gospel in deep. It's an amazing book. We're used to exploring the gospel propositionally, talking about God, man, Christ, response, or even creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We talk about it in theological categories, but here we have an opportunity to, to feel the gospel, to see it in action, to, to see a demonstration of grace and mercy on behalf of sinners. Like Jonah, we are self-righteous fugitives. Like Jonah, we look down our noses at other people who are not like us. We don't share ourselves with people who are, whose preferences are not like ours. We look at people who are different than us, and, and we conclude, God, this world, it would be a much better place if everybody was just like me. And, and we do this in our homes. We, we do this in our neighborhoods. We, we do this in our churches and with our friends and with our enemies. I do it. You do it. We all do this. And for that to be changed, we need to be gripped by the missionary heart of God. We revealed in the gospel. So, you know, I say this almost every time that I preach, and I'll continue to say this almost every time that I preach, that we need the gospel as Christians. The fact is, as we grow, we never move away from the gospel. We only move deeper into the gospel. And so my hope and prayer for us is that while we journey through this book together, that God would be pleased to press Press the gospel deep into our muscle fiber, our bones, and our bloodline. That we would come out of here just rocked afresh by God's redeeming grace. So this story of sin and grace, of desperation and deliverance, begins with Jonah's flight from God. He flees from God. And there's two things specifically that I want us to see this morning about Jonah's run from God. First, the posture of flight. Secondly, the price of flight. The posture and the price. First, the, pro- the posture of flight. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, just a sentence on Nineveh. We'll say more about it in chapter 4. 
But Nineveh was an ancient uh, metropolis, a great city. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And archaeologists have found the site where they believe Nineveh was. And if you look at a map and get it out, what it is, it's in Mosul. It's in, uh, it's in Iraq and in the city of Mosul. And you'll see that. It's right across the river, actually, from that city. Um, and it was on the east side of the Tigris River. And the estimated population of Nineveh uh, is more than 600,000 people. Um, some have estimated maybe even up to a million but a lot of scholars think that's probably a bit too uh, uh, a bit too great of a figure. But notice the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and God called him to a pagan city where little to nothing was known about Yahweh. And and this is really odd because usually prophets were sent to God's own people, right? So what's going on here? I mean. Notice that the reason why God went out of his way to send a prophet to a pagan nation, I think the answer to that really isn't found in verse 2. Yeah, look at verse 2. Yeah, that's right. For their wickedness had come up before me. Or as the Hebrew text says, for their wickedness had come up to my face. And so their wickedness was getting in God's face. And if it was getting in God's face like that, then it must have been pretty blatant, overt, prolonged, and perverse. And so God wanted this taken care of, and God looks over at his prophet Jonah, and he says, hey, Jonah, let's go. Let's go do that. Let's take care of this. And notice the command. It's so simple and straightforward. Go. Doesn't need much explanation, does it? Just go. Any way you want to go, run, boat, bike, walk, just go. That's the first part of the command. And the second part is just as simple. Cry out against it. Just just let them know how I feel about, about your sin. Just tell them that this sin is not appropriate. And God does not feel good about this. Again, no real specific instruction. Just let them know about how I feel about this wickedness. Jonah is called to confront sin and speak about its consequences. Tragically, today, we live in a society, especially in America, where the idea of confronting sin and truthfully talking about its consequences has been erased from so many pulpits across America. Pastors put more trust in their personal winsomeness and their warmth of heart than they do in the penetrating truth of God's Word. It's no longer, thus says the Lord, it's more the winsomeness of my personality and, the, and the, the great ability to speak and communicate to people, as if that's going to win broken and messed up people. And it's just so sad to see this. And just as many people in our day refuse to speak for God, so Jonah here refuses to speak for God. He's rebelling. Jonah's like, I don't think so. I, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. You go get somebody else. I'm, I'm not doing this. And notice what happens. See, now we're getting into the heart of the story, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, just a sentence about Tarshish. This is the far west end of the known world. So this isn't partial obedience. It's not like God is saying, go to Lexington, and he makes his way to Louisville. All right, it's, it's like God is saying, go to Lexington, 
and he goes to San Francisco. It's not even close. This is the farthest place he could possibly go. So it would be kind of hard to, to call this in any respect partial obedience on behalf of Jonah. In fact, it's his sheer rebellion and refusal to do what God has clearly told him to do. Something, in fact, is clearly wrong with Jesus. I mean, with, with Jonah. And I'm thinking about Jesus here, and the reason why I said that is because I am so thankful that Jesus did not shirk his responsibility. Jesus did not run the opposite direction in the face of his trial, in the face of his suffering, in the face of the cross set before him. The cross is laying in front of him, and Jesus continues to go towards it. I mean, Jonah's mission is hardly as hard as Jesus' mission. And let's just be clear about that. Jonah is called to do something really hard and excruciating, but it has, it's not even close in comparison to what Jesus did. And Jesus goes right to the cross, and he bears the sins of you and me. And he, and he does that for rebellious like Jonah. So glad that Jesus did not run. You know, but I couldn't help but think about Elijah in 1 Kings 17.8. I mean, even Elijah, God says something similar to him. He says, 17, 1 Kings 17.8, he says, Arise and go to Zarephath. Same language of Jonah. Arise and go to Nineveh. Arise and go to Zarephath. And then in verse 10, it says, so, Elijah, so he arose and went to Zarephath. <laughs> I mean, God says to Elijah, go, and Elijah goes. God says to Jonah, go, and Jonah says, no. There's a stark contrast here. Just plain and simple, I'm not doing it. And, and many people today are, are like this with God's word. They'll say things like, well, at least think things like this. Well, I'll obey, I'll obey God's word to me if it makes sense. I'll obey this thing that God is telling me to do if it's helpful. I'll do this if it's useful to me. I'll do this thing that God's asking me to do if I like it. I'll do this thing that God's telling me to do if I want to. You see, God doesn't accept such arrangements. When God tells us to do something, we have no choice. We must do it. And Jonah is trying to shirk his responsibility. And we encounter a, you know, a sudden command by God to Jonah. And it's the same with us. When we encounter a sudden command by God by reading the word, we're reading the word, and all of a sudden this command comes to us like, oh, wow, I, I forgot, or I wasn't conscious of that God's calling me to do that. And friends, when we encounter that, it's our duty to obey both immediately and submissively. You see, this text has a lot to teach us about why Jonah ran. Why did he do such a thing? I mean, it provides an analysis of his disobedience, and and in so doing, I think it teaches us some very important things about our own heart. What is our posture toward God when we run from him? Well, I think the most obvious answer is that it's a rejection of God himself. It's turning away from God's word. It's a, it's a suppression of God's voice. It's an ignoring of God's clear word of command. It's rebellion. And when we rebel against God, we, we say to him, I'm not doing it. 
And God says, and we say, no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. And when we disobey God, we're refusing to do what he has clearly required of us. And just to be clear, let's not confuse disobedience with ignorance. It's not like we don't know what to do or Jonah didn't know what to do. Neither can we confuse disobedience with discouragement. It's not like Jonah didn't know what to do, but he just, he knew what to do, I'm sorry, but he just needed some extra sort of encouragement to go do it. We, we want to we claim those things. We want to say, well, you know, I, I just didn't know I was supposed to do that, or I just needed some extra encouragement to kind of get going, get my feet moving. And it's so easy to kind of claim that. And we know what to do, the fact is. And rather, rebellion is actually an adamant refusal to do what God is clearly requiring. So we learn some things about the posture of life here. And fleeing from God is serious because flee, to run from God, is to rise against God. It's a, it's a stand-up, straight, in defiance of God posture. It's a, it's, a, it's a fist in God's face. It's claiming that my way is better than God's way. And every time that we sin, this is our posture. That's what sin is. Every sin, the, the smallest things we do, the largest things we do, this is what we are saying. And in that particular situation, we're saying that my idea or my way is better than God's way. It's suppressing God's plan in, in favor of my own. And we all have places like this in our lives, don't we? And we could just begin to sort of talk and share if we had a time of sharing and testimony of, of areas where we are, you know, we, we just, we just, in one sense, we would never say this, but we're just a little smarter than God. You know, his plan is to do this, but I'm going to go and do this. And so the logical conclusion then is you actually think your way is better than God. It's amazing how, and we know that's not true, and yet we still do it. Um, for example, who in, he, who in here could say in this room this morning that there's no place in my life where I'm refusing to do what God is? Who in here would say, I'm doing everything that God has asked me to do perfectly? No one. No one would say that. And so this window into Jonah's life is, is a, a great opportunity for us to invite God's spirit to begin placing his hand and his finger on areas of our lives where we are not obeying God. And there are some areas where God wants to get our attention and to bring us to repentance. What things does God need to get your attention about this morning? Maybe you're sitting here, as I often do when I hear sermons, um, especially sermons that are beginning to make me feel uncomfortable. And, you know, God is beginning to press in. And, you know, the quickest and easiest way to kind of re-comfort myself when I'm listening to sermons like that is to think about the five people I wish were hearing the same thing I was hearing. You know, instead of applying it first to myself, I start thinking, boy, I hope my kids are paying attention. I hope my wife is paying attention. I hope my husband is paying attention. I hope my boss over there is paying attention. I hope those young kids over there are paying attention. Are you paying attention? Am I paying attention? 
God has something specific to say to all of us this morning. And, and one of those things is that we each have some areas in our lives where we have not obeyed the Lord, areas where we have failed to obey God's clear command. Maybe you're shirking your responsibility to lead your family spiritually. Maybe you're consistently, ongoing, regularly failing to love your wife in practical, tangible, meaningful ways as Christ loves the church. Maybe you're not submitting to your husband in the way that you are called to do so biblically. Maybe you're refusing to commit yourself to a local church as an outward expression of your inward love for Christ and his people. Maybe you're neglecting your own spiritual life. When's the last time you got on your knees and prayed? Do you open the Bible regularly and read God's word? Do you tend to your soul? When's the last time you tended to your spiritual garden? Or is there just weeds just everywhere? Shirking responsibilities. Maybe you're maybe you're over involved with family and with your kids and with sports. And maybe you're under involved in God's kingdom. And it's so easy to justify our disobedience. I mean, we just can easily say, well, look, I mean, I I don't have time to go and engage my lost neighbors for Christ. I got my own lost kids at home. That's not an excuse. And so we turn from God's word, and, and this is a posture of pride. It's a defiance of God and his ways. Well, if that's the posture of pride, then what is the price? Well, rebellion against God is a very serious thing. Let me just speak that again into your heart and life this morning. Rebellion against God, listen, is a very serious thing. And it's costly. And if the posture of flight is turning away from God's word, then the price of flight is turning from the presence of God. Did you know that the fling from God here is a very deliberate thing with Jonah, and it takes a lot of effort. Notice in verse 3 that there are seven verbs used. Seven verbs. Which, which is simply to say this. Jonah is making a lot of bad choices, and he's doing them in succession, one after the other. And, and, and how often do people say, well, I, I, you know, I didn't really mean to rebel against God. It's not like I did that on purpose, and I, and I just... I just got over here in this, this really bad place, you know, and I just, and, I'm, and I, I admit my life's messed up. And, you know, I just, I ended up over here in this really bad place. And, you know, I don't know how I got there. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You know how you got there. You made a lot of choices. You didn't get there in 15 minutes. You didn't even get there in 15 days. You made a lot of calloused, cold-hearted God rejecting decisions. You don't get to a place like that without making a lot of choices. Stop pitting yourself. Look at, look at the choices Jonah is making. Pay attention to the verbs. It says he rose up. Jonah got dressed one day, put on his clothes, and he's like, I'm not going to go do what God told me to do today. That's what he did. Got his clothes on, and he said, nope, not doing it. And then, next verb, he fled. So there's clearly some action involved here. He's going somewhere, and, and it must have taken some time for him to flee. And so he must have been thinking along the way about what he was doing. And then he says, then it says he went down to Joppa. All right? He went down to Joppa. So he gets to Joppa, and he's 
totally in a different culture, probably totally different dress, totally different food, maybe smelling different things. He's seeing different people. Maybe the dialect, at least, is somewhat different over in Joppa. And, and, and everything's different, and all the bells should have been going off for Jonah. I mean, all the bells should have been going off. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you rebel against God, when, you're, when your feet take you to a place that you thought you would never go. And you wake up and you're like, whoa is not good this is not good how did i get here and your eyes are seeing things and your your hands are touching things that you haven't touched and 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 all the signals should be going off you know you should be saying you should be saying i'm a follower of jesus i've committed myself to him i'm married i made a covenant with my wife. This isn't my husband. I have kids at home. I, I have a church who cares for me that I'm in a covenant relationship with. I don't belong here. This, this club is not good for me. This atmosphere is dangerous. I need to get out of here. God help me. You know that feeling? Anybody felt that feeling lately? Morning. It's a major warning. Big siren going off this morning. Listen to it. Heed it. Listen to it. Be like Joseph and run. Run as hard and as fast as you can to Christ. Get on your face and repent. Plead with God to rescue you from your own flesh. From your own flesh. From your own God-neglecting, God-rejecting ways. Oh, how some of you in this room need to hear this word this morning. Some of you have forsaken your first love. Some of you have grown so cold and distant from God. Some of you are in a world of trouble. And some of you may be sitting here saying, well, look, I'm not in living in any overt sin, but look, you might be on the verge of it, folks. You could be on the verge of it. You're, you've become so cold and so distant and so far from God and so callous, and the weeds have just grown up and taken over the spiritual garden of your life. That you are in a, an incredibly dangerous position. You just don't know it. And, 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 and some of you are in a world of trouble right now. Dear friend, get on your face before God. Get alone with God. Get some help. Find a pastor. Find a friend. Find somebody. Pull somebody aside today at church. And don't leave this Don't be like Jonah. God is eager to deliver you. Isn't that the greatest thing about this story? And we're not we're not there yet in the story. We're gonna get there. But isn't this great? You don't have to be here in this position of danger. You don't have to be in a in a in a season of rebellion against God. You don't have to keep going. You don't have to keep the verbs going. Jonah goes down, Jonah flees, Jonah gets Jonah gets up. You, at some point, you can stop that, and you can turn around and go the right way. This is a good day to do that. And here's the great news. Jesus is eager to rescue you. There's no need to let this carry on. There's no need to, to continue in this pattern of disobedience. Humble yourself. 
cry out to God, and he will rescue you. I hope that God is rescuing some now. I hope that there's a rescuing at least effect that's taking place. Maybe you'll go home and get on your face before God. But you see, Jonah's mistake was that he overruled, listen, all the inward turmoil and all the internal emotions, all the sirens he ignored that were going off in his mind. And, and he ignored all that, and he made some really rotten choices. And so the verbs go on. He rose up, he went, he fled, and notice this, he found a ship. <laughs> now, how many times do you hear people say this? Well, I, I, I found a way. This must be God's will. I, I got accepted in that fraternity. This must be God's will. I asked her to marry me. This must be God's will. Now, just make a note of this, as James McDonald is famous for saying, I've heard him say it before, the ready way is not always the right way. And how often do Christians hide behind the excuse, well, look, I mean, all the pieces have just come together here. This must be what God wants. And so many people get to so many messed up situations in their lives and places in their lives claiming that this must be what God wants because, look, all the pieces have come together. And you go through as pastor's counseling situation after counseling situation, and it's like it never hit these people that there's an enemy of your soul as well, Satan, who's quite happy to get all the pieces together. That that is no way to determine the will of God. All the pieces came together. Satan loves to bring those pieces together. Here's the truth. When you're running from God, someone or something will always be available. That's just a universal truth. It'll always happen. If you're running from God, the means to go and the money to get there will always be available. So if you're lonely in your marriage, guess what? There's some adulterous person lurking right next door. If you're tired of this campus ministry or this Christian youth and you want to get drunk and party, guess what? Somebody's giving out free drinks. People that want to run from God always find a way to get to Tarshish. And Jonah's probably getting on that ship thinking, hey, isn't this great? There's a ship and it just happens to be available and it's headed to Tarshish, exactly where I go. And oh, and I just happen to have just the right amount of fare the ship. Jonah's probably thinking, this is great. And and so far, notice this phrase, Jonah paid the penalty. He paid the penalty. Listen, let me just say this. God's boat doesn't go to So If that's where you're going, then guess what? He's not your captain. He's not taking you there. And notice this phrase, he paid the fare. Jonah paid a price for his sin. And so far, right now in this text, it's only a monetary price. He's only spending money, but it's going to get worse. In fact, it's going to get much worse. But initially, here's the lesson for us already in the book of Jonah. The longer our rebellion lasts, the harder it is to get back to God. The more verbs that you go through, the more decisions that you take, 
the more bad choices that you make, the more rotten ideas that you come up with, the harder and further away from God you get, and the harder it is to get back to God. Every day of rebellion and sin and disobedience to God is another plank kicked out of the bridge on the way back to God. Pretty soon you're going to have to have a rope. You're going to have to swing over to get to God. You've lost the bridge. I mean, you are, it, it gets bad. Every day is worse. And, and isn't Jonah's ship fare, the money, he has just amount of money? Isn't this a parable on our life? It's like this. You follow your flesh and you pay a steep price. You go God's way, he pays the fare. He pays the price for you. You go your way, you pay. And you pay severely. Well, Jonah paid the fare, and he went on board to go with him to Tarshish. Now, there's one last phrase here. It's repeated in verse 3. It's kind of a strange phrase. Anybody notice that phrase? It happens twice. Yeah. It? That's right. Yeah. From the presence of the Lord. Now, either you have to be a really deep theologian to understand this, figure this out, or this is just pure lunacy. Can anyone help me out? How do you run from the presence of the Lord? Kids? Anybody know? How do you run from the presence of the Lord? Here, let me try real quick. I mean, is that some messed up thing? Jonah must have known that he could never really truly run from God. And yet he tries. He, he tries to flee the presence of the Lord. Did he, did he forget Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your Oh God. Jonah must have known these words. I mean, they were penned by David probably 200 years before Jonah comes on the scene. But sadly, Jonah's choice to flee from the presence of the Lord is far costlier. The real price of flight um, isn't the fish. It's not the discipline. It's not even the pain and suffering involved, as bad as those things are. The costliest thing of all is that Jonah is you see, Jonah isn't running from God's omnipresence. That's impossible. Jonah's leaving and running from God's felt That's just impossible. He's running from the God who made himself known to him in both grace and power. He's leaving the God he loves. He's leaving the God who first loved him. And that's the really sad thing about these first three verses. And it's the really sobering point of this passage. He's fleeing the place of usefulness and service. He's fleeing the place of mission and privilege. He's fleeing the place of blessing and joy. He's fleeing the place of prayer and nearness to God. How sad. What a What will become of this? find out next week 
But for now, there it is. Posture of flight and the price of it. Posture of flight is a rebellious, hardened, turning away from God's word. And the price of flight is a sad, lonely, fearful I wonder, do we have any Jonas today? Let me encourage you, before you get any further into this book, turn around, get off that boat, walk back, get on your plate. All of us have areas of rebellion, remaining sin and disobedience. All of us have something to repent of. All of us have a boat of sorts that we have gotten on. Lord, help us. Give us the grace to get off. Get off the boat, God, and to lay down in, in front of you and put our hands on our face or lift them in the air or have a position of humility and and with you to be merciful. God help us. We want to be men and women who 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 don't need to be disciplined and chastened and corrected, but men and women who are just happy serving you and, and living the way you have called. Use this series, God, to pray, help us.